Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Hello, Ashley. Well, hello, Candy. Well, I have big news. Oh, what? I watched The Karate Kid. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Tell me about it. I really, really liked it. I thought it was very sweet and it was a good, but I'm also still glad that I did not watch it before we recorded. I stand by that decision. Why? Why is that? I like that there was one of us that didn't, so we had that fresh perspective. Mm, I do like that. And I don't think that Johnny was that terrible. I mean, he was terrible to him until the very end because he was the one that took the award and handed it to him. And he said, you're all right, kid. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. That is a good point. I'm going to give you that one. Okay. But I, I, I think you're a Johnny fan is what I really think. I do. I, do think, <laughs> I think I'm a big Johnny fan. You might have a little Johnny crush. I don't know. I'm just, he just saying. He was super cute. <laughs> I liked him better with his beard, though. Does he ever grow his beard back? Um, He gets a little scruffy at times. Yeah. But like yeah, yeah. I like the scruff. Well, how about a, a total shift in topic here, Ashley? I'm ready for it. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. To our listeners, if you've had a chance to to listen to a couple of episodes, you may have picked up on the fact by now that Ashley's brain kind of works in amazing ways sometimes. <laughs> I she, don't know why. It's like a Rolodex. <laughs> she, she does. She has this ability to like hang on to little bits of information, just like this. Useless huge... trivia. It's okay. You can call it useless <laughs> trivia. But it's fun to test you. So that's okay. what I decided to do this today. I'm going to I'm gonna test you a little bit. I'm going to throw a question at you that I think is pretty challenging and maybe I'm just coming from my own perspective because I know how bad I am with dates but I'm going to see if if you can come up with an answer to this one okay who won the Oscar for best supporting actress in 2009 in 2000 best supporting actress in 2009 yes was that Halle Berry it was not okay good guess but see I, I told you this was really hard so I'm gonna well, give me no don't tell me yet give me another clue let's see I, if I can well pull it out. I'm gonna give you the nominees here okay are the, here are the actresses that were in the running okay and then let's see if you can remember it was Penelope Cruz for nine mm-hmm. Vera Farmiga for up in the air Maggie Gyllenhaal for crazy heart Anna Kendrick for up in the air and Monique for precious oh was it Monique it was Monique, Monique. Yeah. absolutely yes now, the reason why I bring this up is because, as awesome as, as her win was, although I'm going to be honest with you, I have not seen any of those movies. Have you seen any of those movies? Say them again. Up in the Air. Nine, Precious. Up in the Air, yes, Crazy I've seen Heart. Nine. I've seen Precious. Nine, and I've seen Crazy Heart. Okay. Well, yeah. you're doing better than I am. I need to add more to my list. Obviously. Nine, I'm, that's the one that we talked about in episode I, one. It, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I remember that, too. But I'm sure these were all amazing, amazing films, and, and I know Precious was based on a, a book, right? That yes, was I think supposed so. to be wonderful, too. But the actual point of, of my bringing this up is because when Monique went up to give her acceptance speech... 
you know, we, we have this image in our mind of what people typically say in their acceptance speeches, you know, right. thanking, you know, their family members and the directors and producers in the Academy and, and their co-stars, etc. But the very first thank you that Monique gave after the Academy was to somebody that, that I think was a little unexpected. Here is that sentence. She said, I want to thank Miss Hattie McDaniel mm-hmm. for enduring all that she had to so that I would not have to. Mm. And as it turned out, when Monique was talking later to reporters after, you know, the award ceremony, she went on to share that not only did she give that shout out to Hattie McDaniel in her acceptance speech, but she had even dressed her attire was all meant to be a tribute really? to, to Hattie as well. And so I thought, well, what a wonderful way to introduce this episode, mm-hmm. which is about Hattie McDaniel. You know, when, when I think about Monique's statement there, you know, that Hattie had endured all that she did so that Monique would not have to. I thought, well, let's talk about then. That, what did that she then. have to endure? What did she have to endure? What was the life of Hattie McDaniel? And in particular, how did she kind of blaze a trail, especially mm-hmm. in, in the entertainment industry, since that is the focus, of course, of our podcast. Mm-hmm. Before we jump in, I have to give a disclaimer. It was amazing to me as I was researching for this episode, how many conflicting bits of information I came across. Mm. It was kind of crazy. From the get-go, I'm just going to go ahead and put out there that when I would come across different facts or, or bits of information, sometimes I would go with the one that seemed to be corroborated the most. For example, there were a couple of different articles that said... Hattie, you'll find out, did have four husbands, and there were several articles that said something to the effect of one died of pneumonia, the other three were divorced. Apparently not, because as I started to research, actually two died of other causes. One was said pneumonia or heart issues, the other of a gunshot wound, two divorced. But this was the kind of thing that would come up all the time. Articles would be very conflicting. What do you think that is? I have no idea. Hmm. No idea. But I wanted to put that out there in case I say something that somebody comes back later and says, you know, Candy was wrong. I want you to, to know that I was trying to be as accurate as I could, but it may be um, an issue with the sources. Okay. okay. One of the podcasts I listen to, uh, Jamie and Rob, and they have American uh, Totellus Rankium, they always choose the more fun. So if there's, <laughs> if there's multiple options, they'll say, let's just, this is what happened, or they'll make up their own and say, we, we think this happened. I like that. Yeah. So this is an entertainment podcast, guys. That's right. The very first bit of conflicting information comes in with Hattie's birthday. She was born on June 10th, but it was either 1893 or 1895, and no one really knows. I wonder if she knows. Interesting point. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But now one thing that we do know was that she was born to two former slaves. In an NPR interview with Jill Watts, the lady who wrote an entire book about Hattie McDaniel, she shared that Hattie's parents had escaped slavery and they met each other in what was called a contraband camp. Jill Watts described that as a place where people were gathering near the union lines. They met, apparently they had this attraction, and they kind of formed a couple, but Mm -hmm. Henry, that's the dad, Henry McDaniel had no money, so he signed up to fight as a Union soldier in the Civil War. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Of course, they went on to have 13 children. Hattie was the youngest. 13. 13. In how many years? Do you know? I don't know that. Okay. But they were very poor. One of the reasons for that was that Henry had gotten injured in the war. Well, we could probably kind of figure it out. Let's see. If he joined in the war, that was 1860, 1860, 1861, if he was escaping. So the war was over in 1865. Did you say they met during the war? He signed up. So they were a couple before he signed up. Is that right? It said they met in a contraband camp that was near the Union lines. Okay. And then he signed so up after still that, but I'm not on. sure of the time difference Okay, let's there. say between, let's say around 1863. Let's just say that. And then she's born 
1893, let's say that, Mm -hmm. that gives them 30 years to have 13 kids. That's a long time, actually, because I bet they were closer. So there you go. Somewhere in there. (laughs) With 13 kids, probably not a surprise they were very poor, as we were saying, having to do not just with the fact that they had so many children, but also Henry had gotten injured in the war. He was having a difficult time doing really physical, heavy labor. So I'm sure that made his job search difficult. Mm Mm-hmm. And to make ends meet, Hattie's mom and some of the sisters had to do some domestic work. They worked as maids, which was something that Hattie really did not want to do. Oh, and I also should mention that um, Henry had to fight for like 18 years to try to get a pension from the government. So that was another reason they didn't have a lot of money. Gosh. But the family was very talented. They had kind of this musical background. Henry himself was very musical. And so one another way that the family made some money was through performing. A lot of the sources give Hattie's father credit for, for getting the kids involved with it, again, because of his musical background. But um, an article in Hollywood Reporter really gives the credit to Hattie's older brothers, Otis and Sam. Oh, I like those names. I know. They're They're good names. They have a lot of good names in the family. Etta was one of the other sisters. Oh, yeah. But they said that Otis and Sam really helped Hattie escape the the need to kind of go into this domestic work like some of her other family members were doing because they asked her to join them in a show that they had created where they would perform basically anywhere they could, sometimes just on the street corners in Denver, which was where they lived. But Hattie was super talented. She could sing. She could dance. She could act. And and she was funny. Mm-hmm. Um, they used the word comedian to describe her at a young age because they said that in a lot of these little shows, she was just really good at being satirical. And sometimes she would kind of push the edge at that time. For example, it talked about sometimes she would dress in, in white face and kind of poke fun oh. at social norms or some of the stereotypes. And so she she liked performing and she was good at it. And it said on the biography.com website that while she was still at Denver East High School, she started to professionally sing and dance and, and use these performing skills in, in other shows too, such as a group called the Mighty Minstrels. So she went ahead and dropped out of high school around the age of 15 or 16, again, depending on what year she she was, to pursue her career. And she was touring small towns, especially with her brother Otis's carnival company that he had created. And then eventually she created a women's minstrel show with her sister that they called the McDaniels Sisters Company. They said, the Colorado Virtual Library said that it was during this minstrel show, this McDaniels Sister Company, that Hattie developed her comedic mammy character. And so she kind of created this little character who defied, this is a quote, who defied and critiqued racial and gender stereotypes of the era. That's cool. Yeah. That's really cool that she developed her own, that her own character. I like that. Mm-hmm. Kind of a little side note, but in 1911, so she was either... 18 or 16 she got married for the first time to a pianist named Howard Hickman so she was she was young she was married she was performing all of this at a young age she'd already left school so this was a strong woman who knew her mind knew what she wanted and she was going after it and then during this span of time from 1911 through the 1920s Hattie was just building a variety of experiences we've already mentioned that she performed in some traveling minstrel groups she performed in vaudeville shows she sang in a few clubs And she even served as the lead singer for a touring jazz orchestra. And it was that experience, singing with this orchestra, that led Hattie to a very notable achievement. 
she was the first black woman to perform on the radio in America. Really? Yeah, I had no idea. I didn't either. I really admire her spunk and her go out and get it attitude. And I'm going to create the life for myself that I want. Mm-hmm. I really like that. And being so talented helped with that. Oh, too. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was another place that there was a little bit of conflicting information because I ran into one source that said one of the first, but almost every other source definitively said the she first. was the first black woman to be broadcast over the radio waves in America. So I think we give that to her. It was in the context of singing with this Professor George Morrison's Melody Hounds, and this was in Denver, Colorado. The author that wrote the book about her, Jill Watts, shared that Hattie became very successful, actually, as a blues performer and even recorded some of her own compositions. It was around this time, after so many years of kind of building her career, that she set her sights on Hollywood. Get it, Hattie. So it was actually Hattie's brother, Sam, who we've mentioned before, and Hattie's sister, Etta, who inspired her to pursue film acting. They had moved to Los Angeles, and both of them had managed to land very minor roles in some movies, so they convinced Hattie that she should come out with them and and try to get into film acting as well. And this was around 1930, 1931, very beginning of the 30s. As a side gig, Sam was a regular on a radio program in Los Angeles, and he managed to get Hattie on the show. For her very first performance, I'm sure she wanted to make a great impression, so she showed up. She was dressed in formal wear, and she wowed the audience. And because she was dressed up so much, they gave her the nickname Hi-Hat Hattie. Oh, cute. Yeah. Fans really loved her, but... It still didn't help her break into getting some of those great film roles that she wanted because there just weren't a lot of roles for black actors. Right, It was It was very hard. And so... And didn't she not want to play a servant or was that somebody else? It's interesting that you bring it up. She took a lot of criticism because she did did portray a servant. Okay. There just were not roles given to black people at that time Mm -hmm. that were not that type of role. Mm -hmm. And it was was something that the black community really resented. They wanted meteor roles. Yeah. And some of of the other black actors would turn them down. A, a little later, we'll talk about some of the criticism that Hattie received because she would take she those take roles. It. Okay, mm-hmm. gotcha. But about this time, Hattie was taking odd jobs to try to make ends meet. And by the way, I should also mention she is single at this time. Oh, um, what happened to number one? Her first husband had died in 1915, only four years after they married. Okay. That's the one where one source said pneumonia, a different source said it was something with some kind of heart trouble, but it was some type of health condition that He wasn't Mr. Gunshot. No. Her second husband was George Langford. She married him in 1922, but he died only a few months later. And several of the sources said it was somehow related to a gunshot wound, but I never really found out what that was about. So by the time that she's in LA, as we're talking about right now, she's again without a husband. Okay. Widowed twice. Yeah. So in 1931, Hattie got a small role as an extra. But most sources consider her actual film debut to be her role of a Southern housekeeper in the 1932 movie, The Golden West. So many articles talked about the fact that they just were not offering parts to black actresses unless it was like these house servant roles or, you know, maid, a cook. And Hattie took them. She wasn't getting anything else. Mm -hmm. But... As she went on, she started to get a few meteor roles. In 1934, it was a big deal. Hattie got to sing a duet with Will Rogers in John Ford's Judge Priest, I believe was the name of that one. And then a year later, this was big, she landed the role of Mom Beck 
starring with Shirley Temple and Aww. Lionel Barrymore in The Little Colonel. I did not know she was in that. I didn't either. And uh, Candy acts a lot at your home theater. Would you call it that? The home theater home is theater. Mm-hmm. The Little Colonel Playhouse. Yeah, I was super excited when mm-hmm. I saw that. I was like, hey. And and that was the part that, that got Hattie a lot of attention of Hollywood directors and caused her to get some better roles. And what was the part again? She was Mom Beck. But one of the better roles, or at least, you know, one that was more exciting to Hattie was the role of Queenie in the 1936 film version of Showboat. And of course, you know, Ashley, this leads to her big role that that probably is the one that everybody knows her everybody for, which knows is Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind. That movie actually was filmed, came out in 1939. It was directed by Victor Fleming, and it was based on the best-selling Margaret Mitchell novel by that same name. Mm-hmm. And to this day, the movie remains the highest-grossing movie of all time when you take into account inflation. Really, Titanic didn't, and Avatar, they didn't dethrone them? Well, again, when you when you take uh, inflation yeah. into yes, account. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. So if you've not seen Gone with the Wind, the character Mammy was the head slave at the plantation Tara, and she was the servant to the character named Scarlett O'Hara. But Mammy, who again was kind of a domestic role, she was a strong character in yes, she that was. she came across as being the one who was wise and practical, and she also had one scene in particular that was really emotional, and looking at it later, the directors were surprised Surprised, they said, at, at how central that emotional scene was. Which one? Honestly, I'm not sure. They didn't name it, mm. but... I wonder. I wonder if it's when... Do we have to say spoilers for Gone with Wind? I don't think so. Okay. It was 1939. <laughs> I, I would hope. I wonder if it's when Melanie dies, or I wonder I wonder if it's when Bonnie Blue dies. Because I, I in my mind, it's been a really long time since I saw it, but I think she and Clark Gable have this really... I can't remember. It does... I know he really liked her, and he really liked working with her. So maybe it was a scene between the two of them? Because if we're talking about emotional, that's the emotional parts of the film. When Bonnie dies, when Bonnie Blue Mm -hmm. dies, and when Melanie dies. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Good guesses, though. Mm -hmm. Well, Mammy was such an important role that they had a nationwide search for her character, as I think we've all heard that they had... Did for Scarlett. Exactly. And the, the search was led by the producer, David O. Selznick. And apparently it was so well known that they were on the hunt for this character that Eleanor Roosevelt even suggested her own maid for wow. the role. And she was first lady at the time, so that was a little bit of a big deal. And of course, Hattie wanted that role. I mean, this was, well, yeah. this was something that would be really desirable to anybody. So when she showed up for auditions, it said that she came in costume. She was going for it. That's smart. <laughs> but she didn't think she had a chance. She thought that the actress, I don't remember her name, but the actress who was in Imitation of Life would beat her out. Mm, I can't that's... remember her name either, but I have seen that film. Mm-hmm. But she had at least one big supporter. I Again, I found out so many things I didn't know. It said that Bing Crosby had contacted Selznick, suggesting Hattie. He didn't know her personally. He knew her brother. He did not know her. But it said that he he told them, told Selznick to quote that he should consider that Queenie from Showboat. Mm. Mm -hmm. Don't know whether that made a difference. But obviously she got the role. It could not hurt. <laughs> exactly. If Bing Crosby wants you in it, it cannot hurt. It cannot hurt. And it said that she was paid $450 a week for 15 weeks of filming. Wow. At that time, I'm sure that was a fabulous money. That's fabulous money to me right now. <laughs> I would love $450 a week for something. Yeah, I'm not turning that down. <laughs> no. So we have so much more to talk about. But before we do, should we pause and, and take a break? Yes, let's take a little break. Yes. 
Well, during break, we decided to look up what we thought the Haddon McDaniel scene was. And it was, we're pretty sure, the one, one of my guesses, which was the one where she tells Melanie about Bonnie Blue's death and how does it affect it. Clark Gable's character, Red. So that's where I was kind of remembering those two characters together. And we're going to put a link to it in our show notes. Mm -hmm. It is pretty powerful. Oh yeah, watching it, I, I got see, I got teared yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. It, she did such an amazing job and I can see why she won the Oscar, mm -hmm. which is the part that we're moving into right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. So yeah, amazing performance. And so that brings us to the big achievement that we want to talk about, something that, that Hattie was very well known for, and probably most of us immediately thought about the fact that she did receive this Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for a film in 1940. It was the very first time that a black actor had ever been awarded the Oscar, which was, you know, such a notable honor. People may not be aware of the prejudice and the obstacles that still surrounded even that wonderful achievement. Really? Yeah. I mean, like I knew when I think about Hattie McDaniel, I, I would automatically think about her great performance and the fact that she won this award. But I, I did not know any of this behind the scenes information mm. until I started researching. So what happened? Well, let me let me share it with you. Okay. Okay. So first of all, none of the black actors who worked on the film, including Hattie, were invited to attend the premiere. No! Yeah. It was held in Georgia, uh -huh. and they still had these Jim Crow laws uh -huh. going on, and so they were not even allowed to attend. Clark Gable who she had made friends with mm -hmm. back in 1935. They'd worked on a different film together. Oh, okay, And they had okay. been friends for a while. He threatened to boycott the premiere if she was not invited to attend. Good guy. She, I know, but she con she convinced him to go. Really? Yeah. And it said that had he celebrated with other black castmates while the rest of the cast were at this premiere, but it noted in one source how much she treasured a telegram that she received from Margaret Mitchell afterwards mm -hmm. that said, and here's the quote, I wish you could have heard the cheers when the mayor of Atlanta called for a hand for our Hattie McDaniel. Oh, I wish you could have been there. I Gosh, I hate that. Yeah. Another obstacle, despite all the acclaim, and it literally said in, in different articles that this acclaim was coming from both white and black critics, Hattie's performance still might have been overlooked had she not pushed for the nomination herself. Good for her. <laughs> I know, I love this woman. It said that she kind of marched right into David O. Selznick, remember he's the producer, yes. walked, walked into his office and she laid a stack on his desk of Gone with the Wind reviews. After she did that, he took the hint and nominated her in the Best Supporting Actress category nice. along with Olivia de Havilland. Nice. And by the way, at that time, the movie was breaking a record because they had 13 nominations, which wow. was the most wow. any movie had had at that point. Another obstacle, even before she accepted her Oscar, which happened in February of 1940, both Hattie and the movie were taking some sharp criticism from members of the black community and especially mm -hmm. some groups like the NAACP mm -hmm. who said that among other things they felt like the movie glorified slavery yeah. they they definitely had some issues with derogatory terms and language yeah. and then again they had issues with the characters like Mammy that they felt like perpetuated negative stereotypes yeah. but an interesting note is many people give Hattie credit for the fact that at least one very derogatory term that was in the book a mm -hmm. lot and was in the movie script did not make it into the movie really 
And it is said that it's because she stood up against it. Good girl. In yes. fact, I'll find the quote later, but, but she literally, it'll come up just a little bit later in 1947, which would have been seven years later. She, she had a note about how she had made changes like that in okay. some of her films. Okay. Yeah. On the night of the Oscars, February 2nd, 1940, the ceremony was held at the Coconut Grove nightclub in the Ambassador Hotel, and the hotel had a restriction against black people. <sighs> So, the producer, David Oselznick again, he had to get special permission for Hattie to be allowed in the building. Oh my gosh. And that building, by the way, did not get fully integrated until 1959. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Hattie was allowed to attend, but even so, she was not allowed to sit at the same table with her co-stars and with the execs from the film. So you had Selznick sitting over here with Vivian Lee and Clark Gable and others from the production, And Hattie had to sit at a small table against a far wall with her escort, who was black, and her agent, who was white. And they were the only ones over there at that table by themselves. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That is shameful. Yeah. The news about the winners had leaked beforehand, so it was not actually a massive surprise. So she knew she won. She she had an inkling. So that's why she's like, I'm going to be there this time. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And maybe that's also why they were able to get her in. Yeah. Because yeah. they said, look, she's going to win, and you're you're going to look like a... Mm-hmm. Right. Something, if you don't let her in the building. Right. But even though it may not have been a total surprise, it was incredibly emotional yes. for Hattie. In fact, she took her hanky with her up on stage. She was in this beautiful rhinestone-studded, kind of bluish turquoise gown. She had white gardenias in her hair. Mm-hmm. She went up when her name was called. She delivered her 67-second speech. I thought this was cool. It said that, in one source, it said that Selznick had written a speech for her, mm-hmm. but instead of reading his speech, <laughs> she, she delivered the one that she had written with the help of her friend. And so I thought it's only 67 seconds long with a tiny bit of an intro actually from the presenter who was Faye Bainter, somebody who apparently was popular at the time, an actress who was an old Hollywood actress who had been in several movies. You'll hear Faye kind of giving the intro and then you'll hear Hattie accepting it. So I'm going to call this up for us right now. Thank you. 
I hope you'll go on our show notes and, and watch that or look it up, you know, on the YouTube videos. You can look up Hattie's acceptance speech and, and it'll come right up. But it's just, it, it's, so sweet. it just makes your heart happy to watch it. Yes. She's just so excited and so proud. She runs off the stage, you know, she's kind of breaking down yeah. in tears. But I loved how she expressed she was not only proud of her own achievement, but of how she felt like she had helped move her race forward yeah. in terms of how it was viewed or, or treated by society. She said in an interview about six years later after winning that Oscar, my own people were especially happy. They felt that in honoring me, Hollywood had honored the entire race. That was the way I wanted it. This was too big a moment for my personal backslapping. I wanted this occasion to prove an inspiration to Negro youth for many years to come. Mm -hmm. So the sad part is that you would think after winning this Oscar, it would have just opened it up for her. Everything, right? Mm -hmm. You would have thought that she would have been being offered roles that were wonderful and meaty and that it would have opened doors for her in Hollywood and also that the black community would have really embraced her and been appreciative. But that's not how mm. it went. After her Oscar, she actually started to receive a lot of criticism, a Why? lot of criticism, especially from the black community who were upset about the fact that she had taken so many of those servant maid type roles over the years. Mm -hmm. She had taken a lot of them. In mm -hmm. fact, I'm sure it's not a comprehensive list, but on IMDb, someone counted at one point that there were like 94 film credits and they went through and, and they were examining each of those what roles, the roles and were. they came up with the fact that they said 74 of them were servant type mm -hmm. roles of the 94. So that was something that she predominantly had to take. So they said that she was helping to perpetuate negative stereotypes by accepting such roles and they felt that she should be rejecting them like some other black actors had done. It said that Lena Horne was one that, that kept being put out to Hattie. Like, this was the, the woman. Be more who, like Lena Horne. Exactly. Okay. And and they felt that, that she was the type of image, the type of approach that a black actress should be trying to follow. And it even said that the NAACP disowned Hattie. Oh. Yeah. But Hattie, again, for, she we've said this before. Right. She is a she was a strong woman yes. and she did not bow to criticism. Her famous quote, which actually became kind of a, a, a pat response. I, I saw it. They've, they've put it on Etsy that this quote is on uh -huh. there. When she would be asked again and again about why is she taking those roles, she would say, using that comedic, that satiric yeah. you know, way that she likes to respond, I'd rather make $700 a week playing a maid than earn $7 a day being a maid. There you go. Mm -hmm. There you go. And it was also pointed out, this was something Hattie said, this was something that other people said who were kind of analyzing, she did not portray subservient characters, even if these characters were placed yeah. in subservient roles. Right. You would always see her. She had sass. It said that her forte was playing a smart mouth maid uh -huh. who had comments to offer on everything mm -hmm. as she went about her duties. And she said over and over again that she felt like she kept pushing boundaries and that she was not working just for herself, but for future generations of African-Americans as well. Here's a quote. This was from Hollywood Reporter. And it says, a direct quote from Hattie, I have never apologized for the roles I play. Several times I have persuaded the directors to omit dialect from modern pictures. Mm -hmm. They readily agreed to the suggestion. I have been told that I have kept alive the stereotype of the Negro servant in the minds of theater goers 
churchgoers. I believe my critics think the public more naive than it actually is. Mm. So Hattie had to deal with that, but she also had to be super disappointed to find that her roles not only did not get better and meatier, they actually worsened. Really? Yes. Was Um, it some kind of weird punishment? It never said, Uh but in my mind, it was a disappointing statement on the fact that it didn't change how she was seen by these the directors, directors and the they still did not understand this woman can act she does not have to be confined by her skin color right, we can give right. her roles they just lived within that pattern they had of only offering black actresses these domestic parts i wonder mm, and i have not developed this past just saying i wonder i wonder if they thought well she won an award for playing this part so if we have her in our film playing the same kind of part maybe it'll bring prestige to our film Maybe that's a hopeful way to look at it. I don't know. I don't don't know. It's still not good. They still shouldn't have done that. But maybe that's what they were telling themselves. I have no idea. But it, it, it was noted that they felt like the characters that she was offered and that she played became more and more menial. Mm-hmm. It mentioned that after several years, Warner Brothers bought out her contract. It was in 1946 that she was in Song of the South, which is a Disney version of the Uncle Remus stories and a movie that is now recognized as being very racist. Yes. It's the only one that's still in the Disney vault, and they've said they're never going to re-release it. Right. Towards the end of her career, Hattie made a switch. She moved to radio, and actually, this is where she kind of had a big resurgence. Good. In 1947, she took over for a white male voice actor who was doing the voice of an African-American lady, a live-in maid named Beulah. Right. And it it was a very popular radio show, and when Hattie took over... That role, uh-huh. it skyrocketed. It boomed. Right. This was another first. This was the first time a black woman had ever starred in a radio show. And Hattie made $1,000 a week. Good job, Hattie. Yeah, this was, this was huge. And even better news, they decided they were going to turn this radio show idea into a TV show by the same name, Beulah. She Did was, she get to be in she it? She was cast. Good. And, and so in 1951, this was to take off, but sadly, she died of breast cancer what? on October 26, 1952, after filming only six episodes. Oh. And so she then was replaced. Oh. Yeah. So according again to Did her that just come here, out of nowhere, her having it? It didn't say how far uh-huh. in advance she knew, but it did not sound like it was a long lingering thing. No. I think it was pretty, I think it was fairly How sudden. old was she? Either 57 or 59, depending okay. on the birth year. Man. Yeah. Something like 3,000 people attended Hattie's funeral. Mm-hmm. In an Entertainment Weekly article, it mentioned that many of Hattie's white friends and co-stars sent flowers, but James Cagney was the only famous white actor who attended. Really? That not was Clark Gable? Kind of, what year was it again? It was 1952. No, yeah, Clark would have been around. Yeah. I wonder why he didn't go. I wonder what role James Cagney played with her. Did they say? It did not say. Huh. I, I didn't look it up. I'll have to look that up yeah. later. Another... Sad fact, Hattie had asked to be buried at Hollywood Forever Cemetery, Mm -hmm. but the request was denied because at that time, the cemetery did not permit African Americans. Oh my gosh. So she was buried at, and I hope I'm saying this correctly, Angelus Rosedale Cemetery, which was open to all races. Mm. However, in 1999... Did she get moved? Her fam- well, she didn't get moved, but her family oh. members were able, they had petitioned really hard and for a while, and they were able to get a marble memorial for Hattie erected in that 
Hollywood Forever Cemetery okay, where good. she wanted to be. Good. Just to kind of quickly fill you in, remember we had left off with two husbands. Yes. A year or two after Gone with the Wind, she had actually married her third husband, James Lloyd Crawford. He was a real estate salesman that was on March 21st, 1941. And this is where some sad things had happened. At one point, she thought she was pregnant. She mm-hmm. even began to set up a nursery. She bought baby clothes and it was a false pregnancy mm. and it, it was depressing. She could never have children. And mm. so they divorced in 1945 after four and a half years of marriage. Mm-hmm. And then she commented at some point that he had been jealous of her career success. I, so it I sounded bet. like it was not a great situation. Yeah, because he married her. If it was 1941, this would have been the height of her mm-hmm. popularity as far as award winning. Right. And then she married Larry Williams, an interior decorator in 1949, mm-hmm. divorced him after only five months because they fought, she called it, arguing and fussing and said that he was constantly trying to cause trouble. Like he tried to provoke dissension in the cast of her radio show and Mm. tried to interfere with her work. So it was pretty ugly, apparently. Mm. So much so that I bring it up right now because she left her last husband $1 in her will. Whoa, that is... That was a statement. That's spiteful. (laughs) They were married. They were... They were divorced they were when divorced. she died, they but she still left him a dollar. A dollar. Yes. <laughs> yes. She also left her Oscar to Howard University in Washington. But another sad event is that it went missing in the early 1970s, and its whereabouts are still unknown. Really? Yeah. I read that there was one, I don't know if he was a professor, some fella underwent like a year trying to investigate recently and track this down, and after all that time going through records and searching everything, he came to the conclusion that it was simply lost, maybe put in storage, misplaced somewhere along the way as as they would move rooms or do something That feels like such an analogy for Hattie's life. This important person, I don't want to say object, she's not an object, but just using the statue as a representation, that's like the epitome of what you can get in the acting field, and they don't know where it is. Mm-hmm. And Hattie went to all of this, she she went through everything, and we still don't appreciate her to the level that we should. That was exactly the, the vibe you got as you were reading that article and hearing about the, the search that he had gone through and his conclusion that mm-hmm. it was just misplaced or lost. You had that idea of... I almost wish it was stolen. Re- right. They really didn't value this yes, they highly didn't. enough yes. that they would like put it somewhere on display and <laughs> yes. protect it and keep it you safe and know exactly it. where it is. Yeah. It was kind of a sad note. That is. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to kind of review then. Okay. As we were going through, we named some of these achievements. This is amazing to me. When we think about Hattie as like a trailblazer. Yes. Listen to this when I read this list. First black woman to be broadcast on US radio. First black person to win an Oscar. First black woman to star in a radio show. I believe this was posthumous. I'm sure it was. But she received two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. One for motion picture, one for radio. Okay. During World War II, they put together this Hollywood Victory Committee, which is where celebrities would entertain troops and do different things. Hattie was the chairman of the Negro Division of Mm. the Hollywood Victory Committee, providing entertainment for soldiers in hospitals and stationed on military bases to make sure that those soldiers received entertainment. It said that this was super cool. She was primarily responsible for ending housing segregation in LA because she engaged in a legal battle to try to end it when it was happening to her and in her neighborhood. That's amazing. And in January 2006, there was a stamp featuring Hattie that came out as part of the Black Heritage series. And just to add one other thing that came up several times was the fact that Hattie gave back to her community. Mm -hmm. It talked about the Mm -hmm. fact that she kind of had like this open door policy in Mm -hmm. her house. And if there were Black actors who were trying to 
hone their craft. They needed some help. They needed a place to stay. They needed some kind of support. Probably that comes from that maternal instinct, Mm -hmm. I would bet. Because usually struggling actors are younger and she obviously couldn't have children and had the desire to have children. Mm -hmm. That seems like maybe that's where that maternal instinct went. That makes sense to me. And then again, also that desire that she kept referring to over and over again, that she really felt this obligation to try to make things better for everyone else. Mm -hmm. She wanted Mm -hmm. to pave the way. Mm -hmm. And so she, she just did such a great job to it. And of course, all of that leads us back to Monique. Yes. So Monique's tribute to Hattie was exactly 70 years after Hattie's own win. And remember, we started with this, but that line that Monique said was she was giving her acceptance speech. She said, I want to thank Miss Hattie McDaniel for enduring all that she had to so that I would not have to. And then she explained the dress she wore was the same color as Hattie's Mm. dress. And Monique had a gardenia in her hair Mm. because Hattie did. Hattie had gardenias that she was wearing. And then to wrap this up here, Monique also explained to a reporter after her win that she hoped everyone will remember Hattie's legacy because, and I quote, Hattie McDaniel, I feel you all over me. And it's time the world felt you all over them. That makes me teary-eyed. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Finally, finally somebody is saying, I recognize you for your value, and I am bringing you back, and I'm going to let everybody else know your value. Yeah, I love that. Armchair psychologist. My question was, where do I fall on what her decision was? Was she right to take these lesser roles, these servant roles? Should she have been more like Lena Horne and turned them down? I don't know the answer to that either, other than if Hattie was okay with it, and if Hattie felt like it was the right path for her, then we should leave it to Hattie to make her own decisions. And because she took those parts, she was able to be on a platform where she had a voice. All we can do is talk about it 70 some odd years, well, not even more, 80 some odd years later and go, I don't know what it was like back then. Mm-hmm. But I'm imagining that, like what she said, I'd rather be paid 700 than seven and actually be doing this. Mm-hmm. Well, and did Lena Horne also have more ability to be selective because of Hattie? Preceding her. Like, was there a little bit of a domino effect? As an educator, of course, we talk about cultural diversity and different issues that we're trying to address and make things better. Mm -hmm. And and a great quote that I read recently was, if people are afraid to talk about things, if there's no awareness and there's no Mm -hmm. conversation, then how does anything ever change? Right. Just simply by taking roles and pushing things forward Mm -hmm. with winning awards and different things. How did she set up the Lena Horns or the other Mm -hmm. people who then maybe pushed a different way or pushed something a little further. That's one of the beautiful things about acting is you get to be so many different Mm -hmm. people and characters and Mm -hmm. but you get to be everything you are not. So those are some of the most enjoyable roles is when you get to be very different from yourself. But her identity, she was a performer. It's very talented. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was her job and she was great at it. And that was very different from the roles that she played. Yeah. So I think that's why ultimately, and it could be the people were just, they were jealous. I mean, she won the Academy Award. So what do they do? They don't, they aren't happy for her. They are mad because they didn't. You know, you never know. I don't know. Again, we weren't alive then. We have no source material. We can't talk to Hattie. But being from the future, all we can say is Hattie thought it was okay. So we have to support Hattie. Yeah. Yeah. I I totally agree with that. I think just to kind of speak to your last point, I do understand, though, the power of literature, the power of stories in a society. I I get it. 
how people or groups or or cultures or races are portrayed a lot of times whether it's social media what whatever form of entertainment it might be a lot of people see things like that and they believe it mm-hmm. so I get it mm-hmm. I do get it I will get angry sometimes at how teachers are being shown on TV sure. because I'm like oh come on that is not how a teacher would ever behave right I do understand that point I go back to what you just said I think Hattie felt great about the decision she made and she obviously achieved a great deal and yeah so she said okay I can have a bigger platform playing these parts and making a name for myself, and then I can make a difference. So how, however I get to that point, she seems like a person who, once she chose what she was going to do, she was going to plow through until she got there. So I think she thought, I'm going to make a difference. And how I make a difference, okay, fine, I'll play this part, I'll play that part. It'll pay the bills, mm-hmm. and it'll get my name out there. And then when I'm big enough and famous enough, or even on the way, maybe people will listen. And she accomplished what she set out to do. So let's end with that. Let's go back to Monique's words and let's finish on that note. Monique said, I feel you all over me and it's time the world felt you all over them. We feel you, Hattie. We feel you. And thank you for blazing that trail. That's right. Cheers to Hattie. Cheers. This episode of Scandal Water was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown. That's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. All music was written, composed, performed, and mixed by Josh Martin. The artwork was designed by Matt C. Adams, while our website was developed by Joshua Reith. If you like what you hear and you want to help keep the Scandal Water brewing, please go to our website, scandalwaterpodcast.com. Just click on your podcatcher of choice, then hit follow to subscribe. And while you're there, you might as well leave us a five-star rating and review. And don't forget, it's always more fun when you share your tea with others. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests advertisers or clearly professional psychologists thanks for listening